Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on our Neanderthal mind. We dive deep into why what our Neanderthal ancestors did to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock millions of years. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Welcome, cave dwellers, and hello to any newcomers. On this first episode of another two-part episode, we talk to Alan Van Arsdale. Alan has been a multi-regionalist since 1980, and he will explain what that title means in this episode. University of California Education in Geology and Vertebrae Paleontology, focusing on neogene terrestrial vertebrates. Alan will explain what this refers to as well. We discuss Alan's time in the field of sedimentary geology and the new genus of hedgehog and camel that Alan helped discover, as well as a new species of horse Alan helped in discovering. We talk about his time in field paleontology, human evolution, and taphonomy. We get into the work of one of Alan's mentors, C. Loring Brace, who unfortunately passed away in the past year, as well as a discussion on Alan's new book, Human Fossil Record and Classification, and so much more. As you can see, cave dwellers, we will cover a lot of info in this half and the second half due out next week of my conversation with Alan Van Arsdale. So as my saying goes, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, cave dwellers. I'll see you on the flip side. Hello, hello. Hello, Anthony. Hey, Alan. How are you, sir? I'm good. Awesome. Very well. Well, thank you for joining me this evening. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm Alan Darwin Van Arsdale. I was born in 1961, so I'm 60 years old. I graduated from the University of California at Santa Barbara. My major was uh, biology research. And I also studied anthropology and paleoanthropology off and on while I was in school. Mainly, I was a mammalian vertebrate paleontologist. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Now, you uh, also, I have on here that you own an antique store. Is that correct? Or is it more of an online? Oh, I sold the building already. I haven't been in there since May 15th. Oh, very well. Okay. Okay. Now, what uh, just... Taking up too much time, or it was a little dangerous. You know, I handled a lot of uh, gold and silver, and I'm growing orchards up in Idaho now. And I do do it on Sundays at the swap meet, and sometimes by appointment. Well, very good. So just kind of one of them things where you got too busy, and uh, yeah, we're getting. It was just time to get out of it, I guess. I'm thinking about going to work in a laboratory. Oh, okay. Very good. In what respects and what field, I guess I could say? Making vitamin pills, pretty much. Oh, okay. All right. That's a little different than uh, your degree, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's related. Oh, okay. Okay. I have a friend that works there that has a PhD in biochemistry. Oh, very good. Excellent. So now I see you also have or had a degree. Well, I guess you don't lose your degree, but... Uh, in sedimentary geology? That 
was my major and one of my emphasis in my field work. I had a one-year stipend from UCSB at one point, and uh, I was doing a lot of field work and a lot of sedimentary geology. I was a geology major, but I switched to biology. Okay. All right. Very good. So Jen, you didn't really practice that too much, I guess, uh, out in the field, huh? I have a few years in the field. I have a lot of fossils that I found, especially in Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. Quite a few thousands of fossils. There, there was some, a new species of horse and a new genus of camel named out of my work. I found some new genera and species of hedgehogs, which haven't been published. I, I wrote an unpublished paper, a revision of Cyuridae, which are squirrels. That's pretty awesome. And those were your discoveries, huh? or at least you were part of that discovery, I should say. What what I found and what other people found with me, and then also with the literature on them already, and then examining squirrels at the zoological museums. And... Very good. Well, that had to be pretty exciting. What was your what was your most memorable find, I guess you could say? Well, for most people, it would be something like the, the new genus of camel or new species of horse, which we removed with the museum, you know, with skulls and the skeletons kind of broken apart a little bit, but a lot of it articulated. But for me, I would say when I found a, a new genus of hedgehog, a skull, probably one of the most complete dentitions for that family of uh, hedgehogs in the world which are pretty close to what people think of as hedgehogs today. There, were, there was other kinds, other families of hedgehogs where they have complete skeletons and all, but not for the kind today, not way back in the Miocene. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you, are they, I guess, resemble today's hedgehogs? So Yeah, the ones we think about today, like that live in England, they're pretty similar. This, this skull was a little bit bigger and a little more carnivorous than usual than any other one for that family. It had pretty big canines, but it was still a little guy, you know, like about the size of a small squirrel, maybe. And you said you found those in L.A. County? Is that what you said? Is that where those were found? Uh, That was the museum. I worked for them some, and then I was a volunteer. Uh, It was actually up uh, north of there along what used to be the coast, the west coast. So that's an interesting area because it interdigitates with marine sediments. The ocean was going back and forth there. And also it's the uh, longest sequence of conformably superimposed mammals in the world. But the work I did, I was directed by the American Museum some to try to get that sequence longer. You can read that it's in Pakistan and the Silwalik, but it's actually just a little bit longer up in the area I was working with, with the extensions I made up and down in mammalian faunas. So it was a big, big chunk of time when humans were evolving and great apes back in the Miocene, up into the Pliocene, barely down into the Oligocene, uh, with a lot of interesting environmental things going on, forests, marine, near shore, grasslands, but uh, no primates. The primates are a little bit younger than where I was working and a little bit older than where I was working in North America. I maybe could have picked them up in one of the oldest locations or one of the youngest, but I didn't because they came back in from South America pretty recently. And then primates may have actually started in North America originally, but they went extinct back in the uh, late Oligocene. What, what, around what, I guess, how many years ago was that Oligocene? 
all the Ligocene was about 30, 35 million years ago okay. in there. Very good. And in the Eocene and the Oligocene, there was a pretty rich primate faunas in North America. I found a few primates around here on private land, but I never found any primates where I was working because I was in the wrong time frame, pretty much. Sure. I've always loved searching fossils too, but for me, it's which I'm, I still get excited about is uh, it's mostly all plant life in my area. I live about 30 miles south of Pittsburgh and you know, every chance I get, I see rocks that I think will house fossils. And when I dig them up and split open the rocks, it's typically just uh, plant life. I took paleobotany with uh, Dr. Bruce Tiffany, and I've done a few plants, just but I've never really specialized in them. Sure. But they're interesting to give you an idea of what was going on. Oh, like yeah. If you can find some seeds, I found some seeds and uh, a few cattail impressions. But usually when you're finding bones and teeth, you don't find plants in the same place. Rarely you will. I did a few times. And then there were some beds which didn't have bones or teeth, but had petrified wood. Now, what would be the reason you would not find bones and plant life? Just because they've eaten it all? or <laughs> Because there, it takes different conditions normally to preserve each one. Okay. Where I was finding them together, there were soft muds which were picking up impressions of the cattail leaves. And then also I would find uh, celtis seeds. Those are uh, hackberries. And the celtis seeds are really hard, so they, can't, they tend to preserve. Whereas if you want to find plants, it's normally in conditions that wouldn't preserve bones and teeth. But there is uh, out uh, west of here where I'm at now in Utah, I mean out east, there are some shale beds, very famous, the Green River Formation, where sometimes they find plants and then they find fish and rarely they find mummified Eocene mammals in the shale. Well, I don't know what I would do if I've ever if I ever found a <laughs> a mammal or or any type of uh, I mean plant life is living, but you know any type of uh, yeah human or uh, animal of any sort, I would be beside myself if I ever found that. So that's got to be pretty exciting. But if you get into palynology, which I, I haven't done micropaleontology too much, although when I'm working on the mice, that's considered micropaleontology. But I haven't done the tiny, tiny little things like pollen. But when you get into the palynology, then you can get a really good idea of what kind of plants there were, which gives you a lot of environmental data. When you go back in time with vertebrates, you know, they might not have been living in the same kind of environments as they do today, or they could even be extinct. So it's the same way with fossil humans. You can't necessarily go to New Guinea and say, okay, people are living in this kind of environment now, so they must have been living in that kind of environment a million years ago. You don't really know. Or even for a particular morphotype, like you see Neanderthals, they're very cold adapted, but you don't know for really sure. They might have been getting down into a little bit warmer spot sometimes. Probably not too much. Okay. So let's uh, touch on your uh, paleontology. Yeah, you're a uh... paleoanthropology, or uh, pa you have uh, paleo paleontology. Paleontology. Yeah, that's the study of fossils, and paleoanthropology is a branch of that, which people are very interested in because it's the study of human fossils, and that's been my specialty for about fifteen years. Is the study of human fossils, although I was interested in for, for many years. 
And I, I wrote a book this year, Human Fossil Record and Classification. Awesome. Okay. I didn't I didn't see that with the research that I was doing. I didn't see that you wrote that book. So as you said, it's human fossil record and classification. Record and I wrote class. that this year. Oh, okay. Very good. It's available now. Awesome. It has uh, 86 references, some black and white photos. It doesn't go into the depth like, uh, what is his name? Walpop did in his 1980 book. It's not as broad. It's more like kind of an update. So the all, basically the only two paleoanthropology textbooks have been written by multi-regionalists. Walpop was a well-known multi-regionalist, which is a bit odd because there aren't very many multi-regionalists outside of China. And I was actually going to, that was one of my other subjects I want to touch on with you was multi-regionalism. What, can we go into that a little bit to explain it to maybe some who, who aren't aware of it? Well, there's a lot of misunderstanding, including in the professional literature about multi-regionalism. But in multi-regionalism was founded in 1948 in a book that Wiedenreich wrote. And he, he was a German Jew, so after the war, he was allowed to do physical anthropology still whereas Germanic people weren't in their homelands for a little while because of all the uh, racist aspects that it had during and before the war. And basically how he found it is, is uh, in uh, 19th century European typology, races start out as pure and sometimes mix with other races later. And that had a strong influence in paleoanthropology and physical anthropology. And when you say race, you know, you could say, well, maybe that would be more like the equivalent of species. But what we're seeing now is that most species, human species, aren't two species. They're at best subspecies, probably races, more like what they, they were thinking of in the 19th century. Whereas Wiedenreich, in his book, wrote that everybody's been mixing with everybody all along. That's human nature. And he didn't believe that all these different human species were speciated, at least for the genus Homo, at least some Homo erectus and up. I mean, you can get, there is one multi-regionalist, Hawks, I don't know if he still feels this way, but about three years ago in a lecture, he said that, John Hawks, he said that we're 97% recent Africa. But that isn't the position of most multi-regionalists, but he is a multi-regionalist because he anticipated that Neanderthals were mixing with our with our ancestors. So he, he does have multi-regionalist status because of that, because in the recent out-of-Africa hypothesis, they were very firm until about 10 years ago that there was no mixing between Neanderthals and our ancestors at all, period. Okay. So then multi, the, the basis of multi-regionalism is... If you're not multi-regionalist, then you're saying it's just straight out of Africa. Am I understanding that correct, or am I wrong about that? Not really exactly. I mean, multi-regionalists tend to not support recent out of Africa. We can support out of Africa. I mean, it's obvious about 2.1 million years ago, the making a tool spread out of Africa and Southwest Asia into the rest of Eurasia. So there was some kind of out-of-Africa event about 2.1 million years ago. It was at, at a minimum learning, could have been the first hominins into Eurasia, uh, you know, except a few little scraps in Southwest Asia. Or there could have been hominins in Eurasia before, which aren't found in the fossil record. 
And there's a lot of evidence for that. For example, Denisovans have some below uh, homo erectus grade traits in their dental morphology. And uh, Homo floresiensis, a hobbit, they have a lot of uh, haveline traits that they seem to have preserved. Even though they were mixing with everybody else, they were still preserving a lot of haveline traits. And there's no true fossil haveline's found in uh, Eurasia, but you can't really explain them from the African fossil record either. So if you wanted to say that all of those traits in Eurasia were not coming from Eurasia, they were coming from Africa instead, you would need to invoke a lot of fossil record in Africa that we don't have. And that's actually not too difficult of an invocation because the fossil record is kind of spread in a band coming down from East Africa to South Africa. So there could have been a lot going on in North Africa or West Africa we don't even know about. So we don't really know where there's those traits were coming from in Eurasia that we don't see in the fossil record that aren't coming from Homo erectus. So a multi-regionalist doesn't really have to doubt out of Africa. John Hawkes is all for a reason out of Africa. It's more just that humans have been mixing all the time, that there's been steady gene flow and that we maintain our morphology, not by genetic isolation, but instead by natural selection. The genes come in and traits come in, but if they're not well suited to the local environment, they get weeded out by, by natural selection. And there can also be a lot of partial genetic isolation. For example, between Sahul and Asia, Sahul is Australia in that area. Or now that we know there were humans in the Philippines about 600,000 years ago, which is quite a surprise, not as much to us as to the out of Africa people. You know, there would have been a that was never connected. There would have been a lot of genetic isolation there. But a multi regionalist would say that the genetic isolation wasn't complete. You know, every now and then somebody fell in a river during a storm, got washed out to sea on a log, wound up getting washed up in the Philippines or in Australia. So there would have been a little bit of gene flow, just not complete isolation. Same way with Homo floresiensis. They weren't isolated out on there on that island, they would have died of inbreeding. They had a little bit of gene flow with Homo erectus and even with modern humans later. And in their morphology, you can actually see a few traits that they picked up from Homo erectus, which had a lot to do with why people were confused and thought they were dwarfed Homo erectus instead of relic habilines, which mixed with everybody else along the way as they evolved. Very good. That's that is a lot of information, and it was fantastic. I appreciate you going into that. Uh, let's uh, let's move on to something next. How about um, you talk about, and you have spoke before, about your vertebrae paleontology, and then you put in there neogene terrestrial vertebrae. Can we touch on that? Explain a little bit what that is. Well, the neogene, the tertiary, is divided into two parts. The neogene and the, is the later part. And then the, uh, oh, I'm having a mental block here all of a sudden. Then there's the, there's the first part, it's a, the paleogene. Okay. And anyway, your first part would be your paleocene, your eocene, and up into your oligocene. And then the neogene is kind of like maybe the very end of the oligocene and the miocene, definitely, and then up into the pliocene. And then you get your pleistocene, which is your more recent cycle of glaciation 
And then you kind of get the age of more modern humans, which is the Holocene or the Anthropocene, where uh, humans were probably starting to have a lot of influence upon the world. Okay, So the Neogene is the level then that you're speaking of, the level that they were discovered at. Okay. Yeah, the Cenozoic is all of those put together. And the Neogene is the second half of the tertiary. And the tertiary is the main part of the Cenozoic. So you're talking the Cenozoic, that's from when the dinosaurs by the meteor and just a few of them as birds survived all the way up until today. That's the Cenozoic. And then the tertiary is the bulk of it until you get up to the Pleistocene. But the Miocene, which was my main area of study, that's when you had um, great apes and even hominids a little bit, or at least some hominid traits starting to evolve. And I wasn't working on them directly because we haven't found any of them in North America. We can still hope they might be the great apes or apes or monkeys before they came up from South America. Because there actually there was forested corridors in the Miocene between Asia and North America. And a lot of different rodents and things came back and forth that were arboreally adapted like great apes. But there's no evidence that they were here in the Americas other than the Bigfoot people and all that, and uh, and ancient Native Americans who had a lot of accounts of them. Very good. That's pretty awesome. Moving on to, I'll probably butcher this word, but I may not, taphonomy. Uh, You had mentioned that as well. Taphonomy is the study of what happens between from the moment you die to when your remains are found. And A lot of people don't get this, but a fossil is the primary definition of a fossil is evidence of past life. So when your heart stops beating in the hospital and you die, you're already a fossil. Roadkill is a fossil. And all of the different processes that go on, you know, the different kinds of biases, like why do you find more of this animal and less of this kind of animal compared to their abundance when they were alive? You know, are they getting washed by rivers or carried by carnivores out of the types of environments? They lived into other types of environments. And that's very important in the study of human fossils because it's pretty often you don't you don't find a human fossil or other fossil in the place that they really preferred to live. Or you might even be finding them where they didn't live at all. You know, you could be finding them out in the middle of a lake where a crocodile brought them out there. And they weren't there at all because that long ago they didn't go in deep water. Very good. So that's kind of generalized of what taphonomy is. And that's how it's said, right? Taphonomy or? Taphonomy is correct, yes. And it's a it's a fairly new uh, branch in my lifetime. And there is, there is a Facebook group for taphonomy. And it's related a lot to forensic anthropology, which is using anthropology to investigate crime. So they do a lot of studies of like human remains where there may have been a crime committed and and what has happened to those human remains and how to identify whether they were male or female, how to identify their ethnic or racial background, which they're actually very good at. They can tell the difference between an original Australian and a Sahulian, and I think I can do it pretty well, but your paleoanthropologist can't do that. They could, maybe back in the late 1930s, the Nazis could, but they, they no longer can do that because they lost interest in those subtle um, morphological differences between living humans in the belief 
that everybody outside of Africa came from a small population of, of African people about 50,000 years ago. So they thought that the differences in morphology weren't too important, whereas most of us multi-regionalists, we were looking for Neanderthal traits and living humans, Homo erectus traits, like that. So that's a lot of what we were studying, you know, since the um, 1980s anyway. I became a multi-regionalist in 1980. I told Dr. White at his lab at Berkeley, Tim White, that I could see Neanderthal traits in living humans, especially Native Americans. And he told me about the work of C. Loring Brace, who's the expert on the Neanderthal transition to modern humans. Okay, let, so let's, uh, since you brought him up, I was going to ask you about him later on here, but let's uh, get into C. Loring Bruce now. If you, that's, that's correct, right? C. Bryce. Yeah, Brett Brace. Yeah, C. Loring Brace. Not to be confused with his grandfather, who was a famous altruistic, the don- wealthy guy who donated to the poor and all. He studied the transition between in, in Egypt and said that people today have a continuity all the way back to archaic humans in Egypt. And there's a very good fossil record in Egypt, as it so happens, for, for humans. And then he also studied the transition from Neanderthals to modern humans. And I'm using the word transition, whereas in recent out of Africa, more than 10 years ago, they would have insisted it was a full replacement, which now they understand it was not. They were wrong and we were right. Whether that's by luck or our model is always better, but our model has been outperforming their model quite a bit, especially in the last decade. So it does appear to be a better model, and a lot of them are working on learning our model better. You're speaking of the multi-regional model. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And C. Loring Brace also had a lot of interest in the Hoban in Japan, who are kind of an aboriginal white people. And he said they were also founded by Neanderthals. And he could trace through time. And what he said is that the reason Neanderthals became modern humans because they started using more modern tools, and so all their Neanderthal traits, like big long jaws, big front teeth, and big eye ridges, were no longer advantageous. And they're bigger, they had a little bigger brains than ours to also, that the tools took the place of those features to the point where they became a disadvantage. The calories that it took to build those traits were no longer needed. And he didn't specify too much exactly how they came to look like more modern humans. But he was definitely aware there was a lot of gene flow. So presumably the genes were coming in from more modern humans to the founding Neanderthals. And then they no longer maintained their Neanderthal traits very much because they were no longer advantageous. And they started taking on the the traits of their non-Neanderthal kin who were closer in our ancestry that look more like us. But some people today still look a lot like Neanderthal traits. I have a large occipital bun on the back of my head, a big bump at the base of my skull on the back. And that's to have one that large is actually very rare in Europe, but not so rare with Native Americans, which is a Neanderthal-derived trait. Now, the purpose of that would have been, do you know? Oh, probably to it. It would be for muscle attachment. Because Neanderthals were very stocky and very muscular, and it was a way to get their head attached to their neck and their shoulders better with big muscles. Just like the crest on gorillas and uh, meganthropus and even some uh, male chimpanzees and billy apes up on the top of the head. That's to anchor the jaw muscles. 
way up at the top of the head. They have really strong jaws. Paranthropus also had those. Now, one other thing you had mentioned, too, in, uh, in filling out that form for the interview was derived archaic human trait in extant humans. So can we break that down? Well, archaic humans are just people who aren't considered to be fully modern. And as Dr. Walpoff pointed out, fully modern human, modern human, those are not defined. We just kind of use those terms because we don't have anything else better and everybody knows. But some people who are alive today have a lot of archaic human traits, like the one I just mentioned in myself. You know, they can have big, long jaws like Neanderthals. They can have eye ridges. They can have a lot of archaic human traits. And so what we were saying, what we've been saying in multi-regionalism, those are inherited from people living in their region, which kind of gets into another type of multi-regionalism, which is called continuity. And in other words, there's a detectable amount of ancestry in any given region going back to ancient humans. In India, say, or China or Europe, it may not be that we have a lot of ancestry from where we live, but we have at least some, and there's enough that it can be detected in morphology. Whereas in recent out of Africa, there was no archaic human traits at all, except coming out of Africa in that one band of Africans that came up that were supposedly fully modern human already, or by convergence, where they secondarily developed those archaic traits. But we can see in the Asiatic and European records both now that that's clearly not the case, that there is continuity, that over time, from Homo antecessor to Homo heidelbergensis to to Neanderthals to archaic Homo sapiens to fully modern Homo sapiens in Europe, there was continuity where those traits were passing along. And people who are out of will say, well, that's where humans began and involved was in Europe or Asia, or Africa, whereas multi-regionalists won't necessarily say that. We can just say, yeah, there was some continuity there, but human evolution takes place everywhere and every time there's humans, not in any one particular place. And then whatever traits are advantageous, they get spread around until they come up to a barrier to where they're already disadvantaged so they can't move any further. Like they come up against a desert or a tropical jungle where they're or into too warm of places for Neanderthal traits where they're no longer advantageous. But there are a lot of Neanderthal traits in Australia today, but those probably aren't really from Neanderthals. They're just some Asian people who are related to Neanderthals and shared a lot of their traits to the exclusion of African peoples. But even in North Africa, there's a lot of Neanderthal traits going back. You know, Jebel Erhud was once considered a Neanderthal. And they were closer to Neanderthals than they are to us. And that's a... Uh, Ooh, what a conversation. So much info laid out there for you cave dwellers. I want to thank Alan for sticking around longer than the 30 minutes I asked, as well as all the other guests I have interviewed to this point that gave their personal time up to the Neanderthal mind to help and make this podcast something I hope my community loves. So, cave dwellers... I would love to hear from you about how you feel the podcast is going. Is it what you were expecting? Are there things I can do differently to make this any better? If I don't hear from you, I can only assume that I'm giving you what you want from the Neanderthal mind. I would take all criticism that you give and try to mold the show to your liking. But I can't promise I'll be able to do everything. 
everyone wants me to do. So please, email the show at theneanderthalmind at gmail.com and go to the somewhat of a website, theneanderthalmind.com and leave me some messages. Until next time, cave dwellers, and here is a little of what's to come next week in the second part of my conversation with Alan Van Arsdale. Denisovans were just starting to form and diversify from Homo heidelbergensis for the Neanderthals and Hexian Homo erectus for the Denisovans in China. So that's way, way, way back there. That's a lot longer than um, most people would have anticipated that humans might have been there in the Philippines. And these are also very archaic Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind Podcast wherever you download your podcasts. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next week, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget... To leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.